Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. Today I have Antonio Beeler on the show, who has done a lot of work with both traditionally educated and non-traditionally educated young people who are going to college, especially competitive colleges, and especially students who have uh, kind of weird gaps in their backgrounds or low GPAs or don't have certain test scores. And so if you are a parent or a young person who is thinking about uh, college in the near future, and if you suspect you might have a, a fairly non-traditional background, that's what people are going to think when they look at your application, this is a great and a very practical episode for you to listen to. And if college is still a distant possibility or a big question mark, uh, this will also give you a lot of food for thought in terms of looking down the line uh, if uh, college is especially more difficult to get into colleges is something that you think might be a good fit for you or your kid. Uh, I had a great time talking to Antonio, and uh, I think you'll enjoy listening to this. So without further ado, my guest today is Antonio Beeler, founder of Abrome Education in Austin, Texas. Antonio, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've wanted to have you on for a long time, and you are someone I really respect who has written about college admissions for homeschooled, unschooled, alternatively schooled teenagers. Uh, but before we talk about that, I want to hear about Abrome and what you're doing. Because this is a physical school, or is it an alternative to school that you're running in Austin? Yeah, we don't use the word school, but you know, effectively, you know, from the perspective of society, it's a school. But it's a learning center, and we bring people together to engage in self-directed education. Uh, we do have certain supports, and we have certain practices and structures that we uh, utilize to try to facilitate um, self-directed education. But at the end of the day, we treat children as people. We respect them, trust them, and they have the option as to what they choose to engage in. We don't have teachers or classrooms or curriculum. Got it. Unless a kid asks for it. And if the kids ask for it, then we say, great, how can we do this? Uh, we, we never step into the role of, oh, you want to learn algebra, so therefore we will set up an algebra class for you. Okay. You sound almost Sudbury-like in your reluctance to, to impose anything on the kids, even if you think maybe they want it. Well, um, we definitely have a lot in common with Sudbury schools. Um, we, we are eager to share with them what our experiences are and what our feelings are and what our thoughts are. Um, we are happy to facilitate learning. Um, we provide offerings where they can join in, um, but we try to avoid replicating uh, what happens in schools where they feel that adults are the ones that have the knowledge um, and the insight and therefore they need to come to us to sort of fill them up. Uh, we rather partner with them to uh, uh, go down a learning journey, a learning journey together, uh, so that so that they never um, sort of get a mindset that they're helpless and they need to seek out people with expertise or certain titles in order to engage in learning. Self-directed education purist. Uh, how big is a Brome in terms of enrollment, and how long has it been around? So we're in our third year. Um, we haven't finished our third year yet, and we have 12 learners. And we're desperately hoping to grow because um, we're still not financially sustainable. And financial sustainability is pretty critical to creating a community wherein uh, every person is uh, fully respected and feels whole. Um, 
you know, I'm talking particularly about the facilitators in this yes. in this regard. Yes, yeah. I understand. And how old are the learners at Abram? Our youngest learner is four, and our oldest is 15. And our goal is to expand that up to 18. Okay, great. Um, how did you get into this realm? Well, that's kind of a long story, and, and I'll try to keep it as short as possible. Um, I went to the United States Military Academy at West Point uh, because I thought that the only way to go to college was to go to college for free, and West Point's not free. It requires a uh, five-year active duty service commitment, um, but when you're a kid, uh, or when I was a kid, I was only thinking of you know, what the, you know, what, how much it costs in a dollar and cents perspective. Um, uh, I did five years in the military. I got out, went to Stanford, got my MBA, went into finance. And while I was in finance, I began looking for companies to buy. The question was, what type of company do I want to buy? It should be something that I love, something that like I'd be happy to do uh, every single day. I always love working with kids. I said, well, education is the best way to work with kids. And that led me into looking into charter schools and curriculum providers. And after I went to a homeschooling summit, um, you know, I was like shaking a little because I saw all these kids who were really loving uh, of their siblings and their parents. Mm. And that was just not something I've seen very often. Like there was no kids saying, get away from me, mom. I hate you. You ruined my life. It was a lot of affection between <laughs> family members. Yeah. And, and the second thing I noticed was that the kids were much more likely to look at me in the eyes instead of like uh-huh. kicking rocks. And they were much more likely to talk to me as a human being and as if they were human beings, uh, sort of mutual respect. Um, and I was, I was just so shocked by this. I'd never seen it. I've worked with kids in so many contexts um, that I was like, wow, even if the academic outcomes, and at the time that was my focus, even if the academic outcomes are the same, you know, if you just have kids who love their families more and kids who feel like they're members of society um, or they're equal members of society, you know, that alone becomes a strong argument for homeschooling. Uh-huh. And then so I, I realized that, you know, I, I need to you know, find different ways to help young people uh, with, uh, with education. Um, I ended up shutting down the fund that I was running. I moved to Austin, Texas um, to help people leave traditional schooling and homeschool. And in the process, I just kept running into unschoolers and I kept, um, you know, and, and I started to like read John Holt and, you know, John Terragato, uh, eventually Peter Gray, and then even uh, non, you know, white males. Um, and and I just I came to the realization that schooling, uh, the practices and structure of schooling, are the problem, and that um, and that even homeschooling, wherein a lot of parents bring uh, school into the home and they and they maintain a sort of authoritarian uh, approach to raising their kids, whether it's bringing school into the home or bringing church into the home, and I just. I just had a really hard time with that, and I just realized that at the end of the day, um, you know, education can't be liberatory unless you actually focus on, uh, you know, liberating children from, you know, various forms of authority and oppression. And so I just, I just went down the rabbit hole of self-directed education, and and I ended up launching a Brome a few years later because 
Uh, I just felt that was the best way to demonstrate for people that self-directed education was a viable alternative for mm -hmm. them. Uh, and the long-term goal uh, for me is to have self-directed education communities everywhere uh, in the world. And once that's available for everyone and people recognize that it's not just an alternative to schooling, but a radically you know, superior alternative to schooling, you know, then I think that we can tear down uh, you know, coercive for schools and the next generation or the following generation of people who grow up without that sort of authoritarian, oppressive childhood are the ones who are much more likely to take on uh, the other forms of, of oppression within our society that I think are, are so vital to take on. Wow. Like, this is why you're on my podcast. Well said. Uh, okay, I want to ask you one quick question about Austin, and then let's start talking about college. Mm -hmm. um, what mixture of these more <coughs> conventional homeschoolers, the ones who perhaps the kids don't really have a choice in the matter, versus more self-directed learners, more unschoolers, did you find in Texas, and I guess in Austin specifically, which is a, a very special microcosm of Texas. Yes. So in Texas, it's overwhelmingly religious homeschoolers that are doing box curriculum of some sort. Um, there's a lot of young earth uh, sort of focused homeschoolers. Um, but in Austin in particular, it's definitely far less uh, you know, religious, um, there's a much higher percentage of eclectic homeschoolers or unschoolers. Um, I, I don't know the actual breakdown, but um, it's if I run into a homeschooler uh, in Austin, it's much more likely that they're uh, more self-directed than they are sort of doing a curriculum at home. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I remember that Austin has its own alternative education fair every year. Is that right? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a school fair. It's it's not um, it's not necessarily very big, but Austin is pretty unique um, uh, in that we have a good number of alternative schools, and those schools run from self-directed education uh, spaces such as a Brome and Clearview Sudbury, which is a Sudbury school in town, to sort of progressive schools that have a certain twist uh, to what they're doing you know, where they don't grade and they don't have homework and they, you know, they treat children more humanely. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but I think of Austin as kind of a mecca for alternative education, even if it's still a minor, a very small minority that are doing self-directed education. All right. So if you're looking for someplace to move, uh, consider Austin and go check out a broom while you're there. All right. Uh, before you started your physical school, which is not a school, you were doing college admissions advising. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so when I moved to, well, I, well I'll take it back. So I did not uh, have preparation for um, college myself. Uh, I was the first one in my family to graduate high school, much less go to college. And so I didn't know anything about the process. Uh, I got very fortunate in the process um, that, that a teacher sort of tipped me off early on, like this is something you might want to do, here are the steps to do it. And then uh, when I was applying to business school, um, I, I just knew I wanted to get out of the military and I wanted to go to Stanford and, and Stanford had the lowest acceptance rate in the country for business schools and I knew that the odds were stacked against me because I had a 
a low GPA in college, like a really low GPA in college. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, there, there has to be a way for me to get in in spite of this. And, and so I started to do a lot of research, you know, first by going to online forums and asking a lot of questions um, and then doing lots of reading of like, how do you game the admissions process? And, you know, I only applied to Harvard and Stanford. Um, and once I got in, uh, people just started coming to me, asking me to help them or help their cousin or help their niece or nephew. And so I started doing that for MBA programs and then I started doing it for colleges. And I just sort of did that on the side as a way to make money and have fun for a while uh, while I was doing my other things, um, you know, in education and, and otherwise. Um, and I did it through uh, sort of teaching. I taught for two years at a progressive school in Austin and I did it through my time when I went back to Harvard to get my ed degree. Um, and I finally quit that when I started um, when I started at Brome, just because I didn't want any sort of conflict there. Mm -hmm. So you were mostly working with uh, traditional students who wanted to go to elite schools like Harvard and Stanford, and you were sharing what you had learned about, as you said, how to game the system, how to how to get get the best admissions possible for the least work. Is that accurate? Um, well. Unfortunately, I was working with people who were kind of applying in the 11th hour. So people who were applying to business school that fall or who were applying to college mm. that fall. And so there are certainly ways to pre uh, prepare oneself to get admission. Um, and if you, you know, the earlier you start, the easier it is to line up certain things. But I was usually dealing with people who had some sort of glaring uh, shortcoming or a red flag in their application and I was helping them to manage around that. And that's why I was able to, you know, charge people money for it is, mm. um, I was able to like help them re and, and it was based on, you know, initially my application with my low GPA from college and then helping other people get in with low standardized test scores or really, you know, uh, weak transcripts, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can see how people would be desperate for your services and maybe pay you a lot of money for, for an intervention there. Um, can you give me an example of maybe the typical kind of person who you worked with during your time uh, doing this for money and, and how you help them? Yeah. So the, the typical person, I'll stick with college admissions because that's more relevant, I think, to, to what your audience yeah. is listening yeah. for. Um, the typical person that I helped uh, with was sort of middle class or upper middle class uh, kids who had good but not great GPAs and SAT or ACT scores uh, who um, were involved extracurricularly but didn't really do anything to stand out. And I would be very honest with them in the process. I would say, you know, like right now, you know, based on your numbers and your experiences and your likely recommendations, you could probably get into like a top 150 school or something. And I'm not going to get you into Harvard or Stanford, but I could get you into a top 50 school. And if they could get into a top 50 school, I'd be like, well, you could probably get into a top 15 school. And so I basically said I can get you in like a tier or two above where you're at, but there's some things that just can't be overcome. Um, and, and, and I worked with some families who just couldn't afford it, you know, and they would come and tell me like, hey, this is our situation. 
you know, so there was one girl, uh, for example, who, you know, was uh, an immigrant. Um, her mom was an immigrant, I mean, and it was just like a really uh, unfortunate situation at home with the dad who was very unsupportive. And so I decided to take them on uh, pro bono. And I've done that for uh, certain clients, but the majority of the clients were clients who could afford to pay, who quite frankly, um, didn't really need to get into top colleges because, you know, because of who their parents were and the resources Mm. that they had, they were going to do okay anyway. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why I um, really need to stop this. Um, Not only was it because there was a conflict in actually running a self-directed education center, but it was also, I was working so hard to help, you know, usually children of means game the system to get into these top schools and they're the ones that need it the least. And then people like me, when I was growing up, whose parents didn't even graduate high school, um, you know, I didn't have anyone, you know, for support. And I certainly didn't have anyone who was like showing me how to game uh, the system. And mm-hmm. and in m- many ways, higher education you know, is just it reaffirms and and amplifies the disparities in our society, in spite of all the rhetoric behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just something I didn't feel good about. So a lot of parents, when they come to the world of self-directed education and alternative schools, college is pretty much the big thing that they worry about. Maybe a socialization first for younger kids, but then when they think about continuing into the high school years, it's this giant question mark. You know, Mm -hmm. how can my kid, especially a kid who goes to a school like yours, like a Brome or like a Sudbury school or, or any of these other places where nothing is really asked of them. And so a kid can feasibly just sort of screw around for a number of years and play games or dabble a little bit in many different subjects. And then, you know, as a parent, you are you are seriously nervous. I've I've heard this from so many parents who I've talked to. Um, about how this process works of going from such an unconventional, such a self-directed, kind of almost unintuitive educational background into the traditional four-year system. And so I'm I'm curious where the bridge came for you going from a a more conventional college admissions advisor who was also aware of alternative education um, into, well... Specifically, I'm thinking about this article that you published, which was a really wonderful article. Um, it's titled College Admissions for Alternative Schooled, Homeschooled, and Unschooled Applicants. And you posted it on the Abrome blog and also on on Medium. And it just summarizes everything. Like, I, I failed to see something that you missed here regarding, you know, helping non-traditional students get into colleges, especially very competitive colleges like the Ivy Leagues. And so I'm curious when this this overlap happened between these two worlds for you and and what that looked like. Hmm. So you want me to summarize basically, you know, how college admissions works for non-traditional students? Yes, let's start there. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So so, um, you know, back in the 80s, homeschooling uh, in the 70s for sure. But, you know, and then into the 80s, homeschooling was seen as something that was really fringe you know, really problematic. Uh, colleges were very antagonistic to homeschoolers for a long time. And they were certainly uh, antagonistic towards unschoolers, people who didn't, you know, at least try to replicate school at home. And it wasn't really until uh, the very late 80s that um, colleges started to, you know, um, become more comfortable with it. Uh, MIT, uh, 
you know, was one of the leaders. Um, Harvard, you know, early on accepted some kids. Yale accepted some kids. Uh, but Stanford was the first one to actually come out with sort of guidelines for their admissions committee on how they would go about evaluating and looking at homeschool students. Mm -hmm. And over time, um, you know, more schools saw that one, there's a lot of homeschoolers out there. Um, and, you know, two, they come in and they actually end up doing really well relative to the general population. Um, and, and they're usually pretty interesting. And so there's very few schools today that have a negative bias towards uh, alternative schooled or self-directed uh, learners. And, um, and it's unfortunate that, that they do, and I think that you know, they lose out uh, because of it. But the overwhelming majority of uh, colleges and universities, and to include the uh, very selective ones, um, are either neutral or pro-homeschooling uh, and alternative schooling in general. Um, these schools, they want to evaluate their uh, applicants um, along the measures that matter most to them in building a class, just like they do with the applicants uh, who are applying to um, who are applying from traditional schools. The thing is, is because most students who are applying to these schools are applying from traditional schools, public or private. You know, they're all stuck in a system where uh, rigor matters because they're trying to compare everyone to each other and they want to see who works the hardest and gets the best grades. And sort of individual decision making doesn't matter so much because there's so little time for it. You know, so everyone starts taking the advanced math courses, the advanced science courses. They all get on tracks to get uh, certain, uh, you know, um, transcripts that look good to the schools and they all compete. Uh, amongst themselves to, you know, to, to rise to the top. And they do the same with extracurriculars, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so when they're comparing uh, students who are coming from traditional schools, they use a lot of the things that, w that the general populace thinks are really important, uh, such as GPA, uh, how rigorous a transcript is, standardized test scores, mm -hmm. as a way of ranking kids and you and using those numbers as a proxy for what the school really cares about. Um, the thing with alternative schooled or self-directed uh, learners is that they don't have to play that game, um, and so they can just get straight to the point with the school in demonstrating what the schools ultimately want. And what the schools ultimately want is they certainly want a certain level of academic uh, potential and preparation um, because they don't want anyone to come in and not be able to perform uh, mm -hmm. in, in the classes and do well and they don't want people who are not going to be able to go on and do you know more academic things uh, in the future um, so there's there's that expectation um, but what's most important to them uh, and every school has their own approach to admissions, and they're trying to craft a class based on you know what what they consider their unique DNA. But at the end of the day, they're looking for things such as diversity. Uh, you know, they're looking for things such as like how does this person contribute to the culture of our school, um, and they're looking for things such as intellectual vitality. 
And that's a word that Stanford University has used, and I feel like it's uh, one of the best uh, words um, to explain what, what, what I try to explain to so many people. Because, and stop me any time, because I'm kind of like just talking. Oh, you're doing great. Okay. You are doing great. Keep going. Because over 50% of the students who get accepted at many of the so-called elite colleges and universities, I'm talking about like the Ivy League schools or the Ivy Plus, which includes like MIT and Stanford and Duke, um, you know, Chicago, schools like this. Because over 50% of the class that is composed, uh, you know, that um, that they bring together uh, is comprised of, of children with hooks. Um, you know, they're, they're, they have a situation where a lot of times those children with hooks are still really great candidates, right? Can you explain what a hook is, Antonio? Yeah. So a, a hook is something that gives a student uh, a, an advantage in the admissions process. And, um, and the one that most people want to point out is being an underrepresented minority, um, you know, being black or Hispanic or, you know, uh, being uh, indigenous in origin. Um, but so not Asian, not South Asian, not East Asian, um, definitely not white or Jewish. Um, but, um, but that's actually like probably one of the least advantageous, uh, sort of hooks that you can have. Um, a much more powerful hook is being a recruited athlete, um, Mm. being a legacy or having a parent who is a Senator or a CEO of a fortune 500 company or being the child of faculty. And so those are all hooks. And so like in, at schools like Harvard or Princeton or Yale, um, over 50% of the class in any given year can be children with hooks. And again, you know, oftentimes these kids are great kids and you know, they, would, they might have gotten in even without the hook. But they, they have less than 50% of the class just to fill with kids that they're trying to use to shape the culture of the school. And obviously those kids with the hooks have a much higher chance of admission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so they're trying to figure out how do we fill the rest of the class to create what we want to create as an intellectual um, academic institution. You know, how do we create uh, a, an environment where people are eager to learn ask questions, uh, find the answers to questions, create innovative solutions, et cetera. And Stanford uses this term intellectual vitality as their measure, but different schools have their own terms. But they want to bring in kids who have demonstrated that they have this you know, thirst for knowledge, this thirst for understanding, this thirst for uh, creating or finding solutions to problems that um, other people um, can't, uh, you know, can't find the solutions to or, or don't um, even recognize that there's a problem. And so with less than 50% of the class to fill, they really have to find uh, really remarkable people to shape that sort of culture uh, within the student body. And for a kid who goes to a traditional school um, who's trying to get into these schools, you know, they're taking all the right courses. Uh, they're taking all the right AP tests. 
they're studying hard for the SAT or ACT, they're doing their uh, mandated service hours and then they're doing their additional service hours and they're doing their student body president thing, they're, they're a member of X number of teams, they're, they're captain of the team, they're doing AAU basketball or they're doing you know, uh, club tennis or golf. They're doing all these things to position themselves to look really good to the colleges and the reality is, is that they have very little time to do anything that's really meaningful for them and they have very little time to uh, really uh, pursue their own uh, personal and oftentimes intellectual mm -hmm. interests or pursuits. Mm -hmm. Self-directed learners, um, so uh, you know, unschoolers and kids that go to democratic schools or uh, self-directed learning communities, uh, they have a, a, a huge advantage in that you know, eight to 12 hours of their day isn't already claimed by someone else. They have the opportunity to really pursue what is of interest to them, uh, what they find meaning in, and lo and behold, when people have an opportunity to pursue what they care about and what they find meaning in, they're likely to do it really, really deeply. And with that uh, comes a certain level of mastery and expertise. And if you document that um, and you can demonstrate that to the school, uh, you can really stand out in that regard. And I'll go back to Stanford University uh, as an example. Um, you know, I don't know what the case is now, but as of the 90s, um, you know, they used to rate, well, they still rate students um, on an intellectual vitality scale. And, you know, the highest rating at the time, it was a one through five rating. Um, and it, and it still is a one through five rating. Um, but, <laughs> but, Sounds like but, you do know how it is right now. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I was talking to a former admissions dean at Stanford, you know, who was behind, you know, sort of uh, codifying sort of their approach to dealing with homeschoolers. And um, intellectual vitality is the one thing that really is the most important. They have institutional sort of objectives or priorities. But at the end of the day, when they're shaping their class, intellectual vitality is the thing, you know, if you don't have one of these huge hooks, um, is the thing that matters most. And, and if you meet someone from Stanford or from many of these other schools who do not have a hook, and yet they had like a really low GPA in high school or they had a low standardized test score or something else, you can just assume it's intellectual vitality. The school was so impressed by this person's intellectual vitality that they said, we need to have this person on in spite of the fact that they didn't measure up in, in one of these other sort of um, metrics that people you know, mm -hmm. um, judge us by. Mm -hmm. And so um, what he was telling me, and it was a male admissions director who I was talking to, um, what he told me was that, um, you know, it's so rare to top the charts on intellectual vitality. They intentionally make it so that very few people get rated that high because it's really special. Um, but for homeschoolers, and particularly the non, like, uh, the, the ones who are doing it to liberate their children as opposed to sort of indoctrinate their children, uh, that's the softest way I can put it, um, <laughs> they... they disproportionately, like many times the admissions rate, um, had, uh, were able to get that highest rating in intellectual vitality. And so therefore they had a disproportionate acceptance rate. And what people think, and what people do is they look at the, you know, incoming class numbers at these schools and they say, oh, less than 1% is homeschooled. 
you know, but more than one percent of the general population, of, you know, the general student uh, uh-huh. pool is homeschooled. So therefore, homeschoolers must have a disadvantage. And it's like, yes, homeschoolers have a disadvantage if they're doing a traditional curriculum-based homeschooling regimen. Mm. But they have a huge advantage if they are actually able to self-direct and they're actually able to demonstrate intellectual vitality. And it's hard to demonstrate that intellectual vitality unless they're in, they're able to choose you know how they want to spend their time. Yeah, this is fascinating. It's this whole balance between risk and reward. I think from the perspective of a parent, since the more freedom I give my kid, the higher the possibility that they will really soar. In this case, we're, we're talking about soar academically. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure in their brains, there's also the chance that they'll also crash, and that they will not take advantage of this freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure you've talked with a lot of parents who think, well, maybe my kid just isn't that kid who, given freedom and, and support for self-direction, will gravitate towards academics. And so don't I need to force them into doing some basic uh, academics? Don't I need to curtail their their kind of freedom in order to look out for their long-term best interests so they can go to college, they can get a BA? I mean, when you enter into these kinds of conversations, where do you steer them? That's a good question. At the end of the day, um, I mean, there's an opportunity cost to everything. And when we try to fill up their time in an effort to do what's best for them, we're taking away their time to, to engage in what's meaningful and to find what really motivates them um, and to pursue their unique interests. And our uh, conception of what is intellectual is like so narrow. I, I, hour as a society. Like we really think everything is about linguistic and mathematical type of, uh, you know, um, areas. And that's such a tiny, tiny percentage of what the world has to offer. Um, and so it, it, from an opportunity cost perspective, every time we do that, what we're doing is we're, we're eating up time that they could use otherwise. What we're also doing is we're convincing them that certain types of academics aren't necessarily fun um, they're not necessarily something that you would choose on your own, and then we're often um, giving them a mindset that this, you know, this is just work to be done. You know, this is something I have to slog through. You know, which certainly isn't going to, uh, you know, um, benefit them in the long term if they're like really driven to, you know, answer questions, uh, you know, about the universe. Um, but you know this. This uh, sort of getting into college is so easy, right? Um, you know, so like you can, you, you, your child can play video games for 13 years and still get into college. Yes, right? yes. You can go. That's the truth. Yeah, you can go to a, a local community college. And from a community college, if you do well, you can get into the UC system, right? Like, I mean, yeah, or any University other state California system. system. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like. You know, like I, I don't know what the number is, but the number used to be 20, like something like twenty-five percent of the you, you know, students at you know, um, in in the UC system, uh, the Cal system, uh, what were you know, people who were coming from um, community colleges, and you know, when they graduate from there, it's not like oh, you graduated from Cal, but you spent your first two years in community college. You you're a Cal grad, right? That's and, right. You got the same diploma. 
Yeah, and, and uh, uh, a woman that I worked with on a project in, at Harvard, she was a Harvard PhD student, and she came from UCLA, and, and we were just talking, and she was you know, poor growing up, this and that, and, and I found out that she spent her first two years at community college and then went to UCLA. I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like, there's so few people that do that. And she's like, no, a lot of people do that. <laughs> so, so, and, there's, and there's no GPA requirement to get into community college. So um, it's extremely easy to get into college. And, and you, know, e you know, even beyond community colleges, most colleges are non-selective. Like, most colleges accept well over 50% of the people who apply to them. There are many schools that uh, accept over 99% of people who apply to them. And so college, you know, if I don't do this to my child, my child won't get into college, is simply um, a misunderstanding of how, uh, of what the college landscape is. Now, mm. if they're saying, if I don't do this to my child, my child won't get into a U.S. News top 20 school, well, okay, that's different. Um, but... Uh, there's very few people that getting into a U.S. News top 20 school really benefits. And those people disproportionately are going to be the extremely poor and mm -hmm. students of color. But if you're mm -hmm. a middle class white family, you know, um, it doesn't matter where you go to college. It doesn't matter if you go to a top 20 school or a top, you know. Sure, five. it doesn't matter as much compared to the, the more outlier cases. Right. Well, I would say that it doesn't matter. Uh, period and, and people have done analyses of these where they they've shown and individuals are very different than averages right so every of individual course. has their own individual story but like the people who actually benefit when they've had choices between going to a, one school or going to a, the local state school you know the ones who have benefited you know in any sort of significant way were the ones who were coming from the lowest like I believe decile of the income ladder and yep, that's right and students of color but mm -hmm. for like you know typically you know middle class um, white students you know it doesn't really matter that much and you know I, I'm you know and um, like Michael Spence from you know Stanford you know has written about um, actual like looking at people who who got accepted into schools and then went to the state university and looked at them long term and and you know life is about a lot more than economics but from an economic standpoint like there wasn't a difference now mm -hmm. um now now there's no question that there are certain avenues that um you know are blocked off if you don't go to certain schools um the best example i can give is if you want to become a supreme court justice like if you don't go to harvard or yale law school you know, the, Good you know, luck, buddy. Yeah, the odds are stacked against you, but you know, there's only nine justices, right? So, so you know, they're, they're, <laughs> tough, tough job market there. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you're saying for parents who are concerned about just making sure that their kid can get into any college and get a, a four-year degree, uh, they don't need to be that concerned because most colleges are actually not that selective, and they're not allergic to non-traditional applicants and we have the community college system so whether you apply as a junior transfer student or as a regular freshman who happens to be homeschooled or alternatively schooled uh, there's not this giant institutional barrier that we imagine this bogeyman that is going to prevent your kid from going to college if they want to right but and and here here's the kind of kicker right like in in an effort to 
get their kids into certain schools or in an effort to prepare their kids to be able to go into these schools and do really well, um, you know, we, we subject kids to academically rigorous uh, traditional public or private schools or we bring in, you know, a lot of forced schooling into a homeschool environment, you know, to sort of make them do well and prep them to get into these schools. Um, you know, it's far better to be at the top of the class at a non-competitive school than to be at the bottom of the class, you know, mm -hmm. at an mm -hmm. Ivy League school, right? Um, so, you know, what, what really should matter to these parents is, you know, besides the things that really, really should matter, such as are your children good human beings? Do they care about other people? Do yes, they care about yes. their How community? is your relationship with your yeah. child? Right. But, but beyond that, like, you know, just from a performance perspective, you know, uh, with regards to education, what they should care about more than getting into schools is sort of how are they going to perform when they get to those schools. And the thing is, is that children are going into colleges burnt out, right? They, they've had a lack of sleep. They've been overworked. They've been forced to do work that is not meaningful to them and that they don't have, uh, you know, deep interest in. And so therefore, they've, they've learned to put their needs second and they've learned to focus on performance for others. And so a lot of these kids go to these colleges and universities where they're highly ranked or not, and they're burnt out. And they want to take time off, or they want to party, they want to actually experience life that they haven't been able to experience, and they often get lost in their way. Uh, what's unique about self-directed educated kids is they are woefully underprepared when it comes <laughs> when it comes to like, you know, do they know how labs work, right? You know, yes. you know, have they, have they spent many hours like doing, you know, like math sets and stuff like that. Um, and, and they don't have the language, uh, you know, that, that their traditional school students have and they don't have practice taking tests. But lo and behold, they end up doing uh, just fine in these colleges and universities. And they often, you know, from a GPA perspective, they tend to do better. From a graduation rate perspective, they tend to do better. And, and I haven't researched this, and I haven't found any research that, you know, explains this, but, but my belief is, is that they're choosing to go to college. Someone who hasn't been forced to go to school for 13 years, they're typically not being forced to go to college. It's a, it's a choice that they are making, and when, it's a, mm -hmm. and when it's a choice that you make, you're more likely to uh, take it seriously. They're also less burnt out. They haven't been sleep deprived for the past four years, for example. And when they engage with uh, sort of academic um, uh, classes or topics or ideas, they're much more likely to be like, oh, this is novel, this is interesting. And unlike the ones who came from school, they have the freedom to play with it. You know, they're not stuck, mm -hmm. just, just a curriculum, but they have uh, office hours, they have additional readings, you know, they have uh, resources of school to dive deeper. And so, you know, my belief is, is that, you know, because of that freedom that they had prior, you know, they're much more likely to take it seriously and take advantage of the opportunities that are available. And so even with parents who have the best of intentions, you know, um, I would uh, really encourage them to back off and allow their kids the opportunity to not uh, sort of prepare themselves um, academically the way that they think uh, they need to be preparing themselves. 
even if that means your kid doesn't start college until age 19 or 20 or 21, or maybe even later as an adult learner. But the point is, if they do it when they're ready for it, and they are consciously, consensually choosing this path, you know, as you said, they're going to do much better, most likely, in college. So don't push it. Yeah, exactly. There's a there was a book that was written. Uh, it's called Hillbilly Elegy, um, and it was really popular about you know a year and a half ago, two years ago. And it was just it was a memoir of of this guy who has political aspirations, etc. But he was a you know a lower middle class you know poor kid who whose parents came from App- Appalachia. You know he was he was raised in o- Ohio, and he went to um, into the Marine Corps. And then he just went to Ohio State because, you know, that's, you know, that's the state school, right? And he did so well, but, you know, he came, you know, he went into it um, and he just, you know, he found, like, he found what it was that he wanted to do and he really enjoyed it. And, you know, fast forward, you know, he ends up going to Yale Law, you know, and, you know, so, so like, that's a success story. Or, you know, Educated by Tara Westover. That was an example of a woman who had an extremely abusive mm-hmm. childhood. Mm-hmm. That wasn't unschooling. That was, like... That was it, the worst version of homeschooling. Right. That was denying her the opportunity to educate herself. But she ends up going to BYU, you know, against the wishes of her parents. And, and she went there, you know, extremely behind in sort of, like, academic skills um, but she ended up doing fabulously well, and she went, you know, ended up going on to Cambridge, um, you know, and you know, so that's an example. Or Todd Rose, you know, the author of End of Average, which I argue every educator should read, self-directed educators should read, you know, and he was a guy who, you know, got his uh, girlfriend and then wife pregnant when he was a teenager. Um, you know, he worked a bunch of minimum wage jobs. Um, you know, he could not uh, get good scores in any test that he took, you know, but he ended up, you know, working his way into community college and like talking his way into honors classes in spite of the fact that he was, you know, he had no right to even go near the honors classes. And then he ends up long term, you know, becoming a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So he's a professor at Harvard. And like, and, and these are anecdotes. And I don't mean to argue that you have to, you know, get into elite colleges to be a success story. But like those are anecdotes that like, you know, should make it clear to some parents that like this whole notion of my kid has to be ready to get into a certain school at the age of 18 and those schools should be like Harvard, Yale, Princeton um, in order for them to reach the highest levels of, you know, success by societal standards is just nonsense. Um, and so, uh, you know, the the what what we put children through just so they can have that opportunity you know is really uh misguided but even from um the sort of like risk averse perspective like okay maybe my kid won't uh like lead a great life but at least you know they won't be living you know on the curb right like at least if they get an education if i force them to get an education at least Mm -hmm. at least they'll be okay I still think that that's misguided because um, if you never give your child the opportunity to make decisions that are relevant in their life um, and you tell them that education, uh, you, know, a, you know, college degree is the answer to, you know, not being poor, you know, not being financially secure, you know, what they're going to do is they're not going to really love learning. 
they're not going to really find what's meaningful in their life. They're going to go to college and they may or may not graduate with a degree. And then all of a sudden, for the first time in their life, they're actually going to be in charge of their life. And so even if you fear that they're not going to voluntarily learn algebra or they're not going to voluntarily learn how to write a five paragraph essay, you know, while they're, you know, pre 18, um, you know, releasing the reins and giving them the freedom to figure out what's meaningful to them now when they have the security of uh, mom and dad, you know, of mm-hmm. having a roof overhead, not having to worry about food or health care, um, you know, is still the, what I believe is still the safest <laughs> path that they can take. Hmm. I, I fundamentally agree with you. And I think it's also a pretty tricky and nuanced subject. And a lot of listeners, a lot of parents who have decided to unschool their kids, for example, probably did come from traditional backgrounds where they were forced to go through the motions. And I bet most of them did go to college. And maybe they look at themselves now and say, well, yes, I was forced to do all this stuff, but I turned out okay. And so maybe, uh, you know, I can give my kid a lot of freedom and still kind of ensure that they get into college. Because if I got through it, then then my kid can get through it too. And And there is a certain bias in our society. Mm-hmm. And, and the United States is pretty open in terms of of, of this, uh, you know, compared to other countries, mm-hmm. uh, there is a bias towards people with bachelor's degrees or advanced degrees uh, in the workplace. Um, anyways, w- we could talk for a whole nother hour about this subject. Uh, s- but I wanted to circle back to something you were talking about earlier, um, the intellectual vitality mm-hmm. element and how that is really how homeschoolers and unschoolers and alternative school students stand out, especially with very competitive schools. Uh, can you give me one or two examples of, like, specifically, of what an intellectually uh, vital <laughs> yeah. teenager has done, or you know, what what kind of work they've done, how they've they've uh, you know showed their skills off to potential schools? Yeah, that that is every single time someone asks me a question, I refuse to answer it, and I'm not, oh, and, okay. and, and, and I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to be evasive, but, but this, this is the reason why. Um, every single person is unique in this world. Like every person is unique relative to the person they were yesterday, quite frankly. Um, but you know, we all learn in our own different ways. We all have our own sort of natural inclinations and proclivities. We all have our own sort of natural um, advantages in life, and then also the unnatural advantages as well, um, such as who our parents are, you know, where we live, things like that. And so. You know, what, what is intellectual vitality to one person, like, you know, that is like a standard, but it's relevant to very, very few people. Um, so, so I'm not going to give an example, but what I will say is that every single person has unique interests and, you know, experiences that, you know, have helped push them or guide them in some, some unique way. And when a child has, uh, you know, sort of unbounded time to dive deeply into the things that they care about, you know, they are much more likely to uh, find uh, other sort of activities or, uh, you know, fields that they can uh, dabble in and dive into. And, mm-hmm. and they're able to synthesize and understand things um, in their area of focus in a way that 
you know, over the years, other people just aren't going to be able to do because, you know, other people have a, sh- a shallow uh, appreciation of our experience with it. And so if, 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 they, if they're given the freedom to do something year over year and they're supported in that journey instead of told you're wasting your time, you should be focusing on this, um, they will, if they want to, uh, they will have the opportunity to create experiences um, that they can document that will allow you to recognize, wow, this person, you know, pursues something that they care about deeply. They have a deep understanding of it. They can talk about it fluently and they can create something out of it. So intellectual vitality, I can tell you what it's not. Intellectual vitality is not taking a bunch of MIT courses online and saying, look at, I've already done the equivalent of two years of you know MIT uh, courses, you know by the end of high school, um, intellectual vitality is not um, sort of uh, you know joining science Olympiads and doing really well in competitions against others. Intellectual vitality, what it looks like is it looks like people you know pursuing things because there's benefit to them just by doing them. It's not about competing. It's not about well, being number one. Uh, let me push back against that yeah. for a moment. I, I feel like there's a distinction to be made here between taking a bunch of MIT courses just to signal your intelligence mm-hmm. to future colleges or doing uh, yeah, scientific Olympiads mm-hmm. just to say, look at me, I'm smart, versus doing them as part, you know, if you can fit them into a larger narrative about like, okay, I, I did this competition because, although in this moment, I'm struggling to think of how that fits into a narrative of like becoming a scientist. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the MIT courses, for example, if this was two years of online MIT courses that were related to a specific intellectual passion, then that would definitely benefit the kid, right? If that was made clear in their, their personal statement, in their admissions package. Do you agree with me? I agree that would be uh, supplemental. I agree that it would certainly support a narrative, uh-huh. and the narrative is extremely important. It's like, what story are you telling? Yeah. Very, very important. But if it looks like you're doing something for the sake of signaling, like, look how good I am, look how I can beat out others, look how I'm checking off these boxes, that typically doesn't look like intellectual vitality. What looks yeah. like intellectual vitality is getting lost in something because you love it and you don't necessarily have a desire to show the world how great you are. You know, now to the extent that you can then demonstrate it, you know, through like starting an organization, you know, that, you know, you can then point to how much money you've raised or how, you know, many products you've sold or, you know, because I was involved in this, you know, I ended up doing work with this person and that person you know, suggested to me that, you know, I, you know, present at a certain conference or that, you know, I, I compete in this certain uh, competition and then I won. Well, then sure. But um, these schools uh, have become very good. And again, we're only talking about the super highly selective schools because most other schools, you, you don't have to do any of this to get in. But the, the super selective schools, you know, they're very... Um, skeptical of people when they're applying and they're very skeptical of their accomplishments. And, you know, uh, one thing that's common in college admissions committees is like, you know, is this what the dad did? Is this what the mom did? Or is this Mm -hmm. what the kid did? 
is this what the dad wanted? Is this what the mom wanted? Or is this what the kid wanted? And if they see people who are constantly seeking out, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, credential, some sort of ribbon, some sort of award um, as a way of signaling intellectual vitality, they're typically not signaling intellectual vitality. But, you know, when you see someone who loves baking, for example, so much, and that baking has led them into, you know, creating their own baked goods line, and that, you know, then leads them to create a YouTube channel, and that, you know, then leads them to, you know, they, they start doing things not necessarily because they're performing for others. It's like they're so immersed in it that, like, it matters to them. Like, like are they the kid that's waking up at 4 a.m. to go work at the local bakery for that experience? You know, not knowing that, at, you know, someday in the future, they're also going to apply to college, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm -hmm. you know, are, are they the person who gets so lost in, you know, like, uh, you know, um, some academic topic, you know, that they develop a deep, you know, you know, uh, you know, reading of, of whatever. And then, you know, through that, they get introduced to a professor and they work with that professor over a period of many years and they're doing research in the professor's lab and they're like uh, co-authoring like journal articles you know <laughs> that but but that that's very different than what is happening at a lot of these like highly selective or uh, you know uh, I, forgive me rigorous um, like college prep schools where the kid's a sophomore and then they're told now you have to go out and reach out to some college professors and go find a way to work in their lab. You know, so when the college admissions committee reads the one recommendation from the professor or two, they see what the person has actually done in those labs, it's going to be pretty obvious who is just trying to do something to perform for the college admissions committee and who is like, oh my God, this person lives and breathes, you know, this you know, topic mm -hmm. and understand it. And so that's what intellectual vitality is. It's like, it's like pornography, right? The, the Supreme, you know, court, you know, I don't know what it is, but when I see it, I, I can't tell you what it is, but when I see it, I know what it is, right? That, yeah, yeah, the Supreme Court justice that couldn't give the definition right. of, of what hardcore por pornography was. But exactly. When, when you, you know it when you see it. Right, exactly. So um, I'm hearing a theme here, which is uh, a kid going really deep into one thing. And so can you comment on breadth versus depth? Um, if a kid has multiple interests and is not super passionate about one thing and they go really deep into it for multiple years, mm -hmm. is that not a good intellectual vitality indicator from a college admissions perspective? So it, it depends. Um, right now, the schools typically want, you know, you know, what they call like T-shaped applicants or sharp applicants, you know, ones that uh, really dive into something. Um, and then they try to create a balanced class or, or a round class uh, by bringing together all these people with very different, unique interests and whatnot to create, you know, a well-rounded class. Um, but it's a traditional school student who would benefit more from like having lots of different uh interest and whatnot because like that's what's expected of them because they're forced to do so many different things um, but there's you know you can demonstrate intellectual vitality by having you know multiple interests and in fact it's actually easier to demonstrate that if you can you know find the overlaps and you know find ways to bring different things together if you're interested in dance and physics right like there's ways to to bring those two together you know that um 
you know, you know, find the overlap. That's where most of the innovation comes in science, right? It's usually, you know, in, at the intersection of, of, of two fields. And so, um, yes, uh, there's certainly a possibility to demonstrate intellectual vitality that way. In fact, you know, that might be uh, a superior way to demonstrate intellectual vitality, but it would have to make sense, right? If, mm-hmm. if, it couldn't just the narrative. be, yeah, it couldn't just be, well, I'm, I'm interested in these two very two things and these two worlds never meet. Right. That mm-hmm. then the question is like, well, who are you? What are you trying to do? Why is this important to you? And um, you know, critical to the college admissions process for you know these sort of elite schools is being able to actually provide a story that allows it to all make sense. And that's where I talk about a common thread with people. It's like, what's the common thread that pulls everything together? And if you can't define that for yourself you're going to have a really hard time explaining that to a school. Mm. So Antonio, for someone who knows so much about the elite college admissions game, I know that you're also very critical of this assumption. You've already expressed this in this mm-hmm. podcast uh, of the the necessity and the usefulness um, or the return on investment of going to highly mm-hmm. competitive colleges. And I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about this through the lens of this recent college admissions bribery mm-hmm. scandal? Like, like, how did you parse that news? Uh, what did that represent to you? And maybe you could give listeners who are not familiar with this um, uh, just a bit of an overview of what happened. Yeah, so in short, there was a college admissions consultant uh, who developed relationships with uh, oftentimes coaches at a variety of uh, highly ranked or competitive schools, um, to include Yale and Stanford and USC. Um, and uh, in exchange for those coaches designating his, uh, his clients as athletic recruits um, for money, uh, you know, um, those clients would have an admissions advantage because they would have, now have a hook. Yeah, they were buying hooks for right. tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and so... Um, and so it was definitely unfortunate, but it was also really fascinating how that became such a big story. Because for people who um, have been in the college admissions world, you know, what this consultant did was he effectively just cut out, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, this person was acting as like a broker of these opportunities. And so he was enriching himself and the coaches were enriching themselves in a way that the, the schools were like, or the FBI was like, this is not fair. Um, but it's completely fair if you skip over the, the admissions consultant and the coaches. Um, you know, even when the FBI did their, when they did their uh, press conference um, initially, you know, it was fascinating that the, the, uh, the agent from the FBI said, this wasn't an example of parents paying for a new library to get their kids in the school. This was an example of parents paying a consultant, right? And so, so, so even the FBI acknowledged that there's ways to buy uh, your way into these top colleges that are completely legal and accepted. And uh, you know, if you're the child of a rich and powerful person, you have a tremendous uh, advantage. If your parent is willing to pay you know, $10 million uh, to get you into school, um, they're going to let you in. Uh, Jared Kushner is 
you know, kind of a, a famous, um, you know, person, you know, along these like sort of storylines because in Daniel Golden, I believe that's his name, in his book Price of Admission, you know, he talked about Kushner long before anyone knew that he was going to be, you know, like uh, married to uh, the president's daughter. Um, you know, uh, his his dad paid something like a, a measly one million or two million dollar donation <laughs> to Harvard and he, jump change. Yeah, and he ended up getting into Harvard. So, like, we've all known that there's ways to buy your way into these colleges, and we've all known that there's ways to, you know, uh, to to have hooks that allow you an end around of the traditional education process. So, um, you know, for for people who have like uh, made it their business to be aware of that, it, it certainly wasn't any surprise at all. But to the general public who who you know tends to believe that that college admissions is meritocratic, it was certainly a big surprise. Hmm. But what all the news about this this controversy made me realize something I didn't know before or didn't think about was that, uh, for example, lacrosse. As a sport, if colleges are going to actively recruit lacrosse players, mm-hmm. uh, they're only going to recruit them from a very small number okay. of high schools where where kids have lacrosse. Like that happens at private schools mm-hmm. and definitely more wealthy schools. That's not happening at your run of the mill public school. Yeah, and so that this is already happening. Kids are going to to private schools to play lacrosse so they can be part of this very small group of people who can then get recruited and circumvent many of the normal academic requirements to play lacrosse for for an elite college. And so, like you said, it, this is already happening. And it sounds like the controversy uh, here was that um, only moderately wealthy families were, were kind of exposed for doing this, you know, people who were paying $50,000 to get there to buy a hook for their kids instead of, of much wealthier families who are paying millions of dollars to create endowments or professor professorships or buy new buildings or, or universities. So, so it sounds like this wasn't that surprising to you. Well, what, what was surprising about it was that, you know, that, that this college admissions consultant was having them outright lie and he was getting, uh, you know, he was partnering with coaches to outright lie that these were athletic uh, recruits, and so in in that regard, it was surprising, and you know, and and a little bit different. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what the parents should have done is instead of giving you know fifty thousand dollars to this uh, consultant, they should have given five million dollars to the school, and then they wouldn't have had to lie, or <laughs> or instead of saying that they were oh, gosh. soccer recruit, right? In the eleventh grade, they should have actually like had the kid training in, you know, some Olympic sport, you know, where the pool is much smaller so that they could have. The, the, yeah. the, the fascinating thing is that, you know, Duke and Stanford, they're Division I schools and they have to compete, you know, at the highest level. So when you get a, when you get a basketball player or a football player or a wrestler, like at, you know, those schools, um, you know, they still have to be really, really good to get in athletically. Right to be an athletic recruit, but when you're talking about some of these Division three schools, like when you're talking about MIT, you know Williams, Amherst University of Chicago, um, you know you don't even have to be a good athlete. I mean, you have to be good enough to play Division three, but you know no one in Division three typically is like setting the world on fire, right? You know, um, you could be like a you know top you know twenty thousand 
you know, football player in high school and, and, and play on one of those teams. Um, and, well, I don't know if that's right, maybe top 10,000. But, you know, these, these aren't the, the cream of the crop athletically that are getting into these schools, but they have this tremendous, um, you know, admissions advantage to get into these highly selective colleges and universities. And, and I just, you know, I, I think it's good that people are really scrutinizing this case, but I think that they're missing the point, as you said, that there are people who are dabbling in sports and they're not even that good. And these sports have such small pools of people often, you know, that you have, you don't even have to be, you know, good in order to find your way into a school, um, you know, uh, using this recruited athlete angle. Hmm. Well, uh, we're getting near the end here, Antonio, and I want to ask you a few closing questions. The first one is, what are your favorite books regarding college admissions and thinking about the college game that you like to suggest to parents and young people you work with? Yeah, so, you know, first and foremost, I actually recommend that, ev- so I, I do uh, alumni interviews for college admissions, and at the end of every interview, I highly recommend that they pick up Excellent Sheep. Uh, by William Derisowitz. I think that that is an amazing book for young people, and it's a great way to frame their mind around like how they want to take advantage of uh, their college experience, and it, and it helps them think about where they want to spend their time in college. Um, and and he makes it very clear that just going to you know a school like Yale, where he was a professor, you know, isn't doing you or society a favor. Um, the Price of Admissions was an amazing book. It's kind of old now. It probably came out in the late '90s, early 2000s. But it, but it was an ama- It's an amazing book that really like uh, explodes the myth of meritocracy uh, with regards to college admissions. So I would definitely recommend people, uh, you know, uh, read that if they if they want to like see the hypocrisy of college admissions. With regards to just like learning how to game the system. Um, I talk uh, to families about how to approach the college admissions process. And you can do one of two things. You can either play the game or not play the game. And, you know, in the college admissions world, you know, in order to get into these colleges, if you don't have hooks, um, you know, and even if you do have hooks, like it's just to a lesser degree, um, you have to rise to the top of whatever you're doing, right? You have to rise to the top of your class, you know, in terms of academic performance, you have to rise to the top in terms of your ability on uh, to score high on standardized test scores. You have to rise to the top in you know what you do extracurricularly, and so in order to play the game that way, you have to invest tremendous amounts of time and energy to position yourself just to be in play. And of course, you you have to write you know great essays. You have to get great recommendations, all that stuff. Um, or you can just not play the game, and that's what I encourage you know every uh, young person to do. And I encourage parents to give their kids the freedom to do that. And instead of focusing on getting into these top schools, you know, just focus on doing what you love and doing it, you know, deeply, going into it, you know, whatever it is. And if it's not something that you like, if it's something you realize doesn't work for you, then change course, like drop it and go do something else. Figure out to the best of your ability, you know, who you are, uh, what matters to you. And do that uh, deeply. And then when it comes time to apply, you're going to be so interesting. Um, and you're going to be able to demonstrate intellectual vitality you know, if you're going down this more academic path. 
um, that you have a huge advantage in the college admissions process. And if you're looking at schools like Harvard and Stanford and Chicago, et cetera, um, you're also going to look at, you know, what is expected of me to apply to these schools. And obviously, unfortunately for all of them except for Chicago, you're still required to uh, submit standardized test scores. So you're still going to have to prepare for those standardized tests, but you're doing it because you want to, and that's a path that you're choosing, and you have ample time uh, to do it, SAT2s uh, as well, stuff like that. Um, but, but you'll be able to go ahead and uh, build sort of a transcript or a portfolio of experiences uh, whereby you can present it to the school and use it to support the story that you're telling. Uh, but most importantly, you're going to be an interesting person that demonstrates intellectual vitality, and that will give you a big advantage in the game. Uh, however, there's one huge risk to all of this, is if you're self-directed um, and you're pursuing things that matter to you because, you know, because you find value in them you know, of themselves, um, then you're much more likely to be the person who recognizes that you don't need to go to Harvard. <gasps> That's a real danger right there. Yep. <laughs> and uh, last question for you. Uh, you have mentioned transcripts and documentation mm -hmm. a lot. And, and I have struggled to point parents towards good, clear examples of, of both of those, um, often because families tend to keep them private. Mm -hmm. And so w what do you do when someone says, okay, but can I see a transcript you know, can, how do I document this stuff? I, I need some concrete examples. Yeah. So two things. One is if someone is intent in, uh, on applying to certain schools, like the really selective schools, you know, it probably is a good idea for them to go take a community college course, you know, just so that they can demonstrate that they can sit down in a chair and listen and be in a classroom setting. They don't have yeah. to take a bunch, you know, but it helps to take a couple. And it, completely agree. Yeah. And so, so that's one thing. And so that will be an easy way to, to demonstrate on a transcript that you're doing these things. But the second thing is I would recommend that they not try to replicate a traditional school transcript. So, you know, a lot of uh, unschooling uh, applicants, uh, you know, will go out and say, okay, well, the college insists that I must have four years of, you know, math and three years of science, including one lab. And so they'll say, okay, this is what I've done over the past four years, and this is how I got PE in. This is how I got this in. Um, those guidelines that those schools provide are for traditional schooled students who have access to a traditional curriculum. Trying to show that you're able to uh, translate what you did in a self-directed setting uh, so that it somehow would fit into a traditional school setting is actually selling yourself short. And so I would encourage, I do encourage people to create transcripts that are really rich, um, that talk about what you actually did and why you did it, and not try to create it in a way that looks a certain way um, as if you were able to come, as if you came from, say, a, a small private school. And so, mm -hmm. and, and these, and the, these admissions committees, in the mid-80s, they, they didn't have much experience with homeschoolers. Uh, nowadays, they have you know, X number of homeschoolers apply every year. You know, many of the colleges have uh, one admissions uh, director who is dedicated to covering uh, homeschoolers plus a certain oh, region. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, and so like homeschoolers are very rarely uh, compared to like you know there you know in some places there there might be a uh, a representative that is like responsible for the entire southeast, right? Um, but you know these schools also typically have an admissions director who says, oh, this is a homeschooling applicant. I'm kicking this over to you because you're looking at all the homeschoolers, you know, as a cohort. And 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 it should be obvious that someone who's self-directed versus someone who's doing a Becca books at home or some other uh, box curriculum, you know, the unscore is just going to come out, you know, looking so much better, um, you know, in the process. Okay, so it sounds like you don't have any specific places to point people to go see examples of transcripts and uh, documented work. Uh, is that right? I just wanted to, yeah. to follow up. No, on that's that. right. And the stuff that you're going to find online are gonna, is going to be really terrible because they're going <laughs> to they're going to try to show you how to make the unschooled experience look like you went to a traditional school. And and, and to be fair, I have I have talked with people who's who are applying to like maybe less competitive public schools, public colleges that, that do want uh, the homeschooling stuff to look like, like traditional school stuff. So that does happen every once in a while. When I, when it comes to more competitive colleges, I'm totally with you in terms of, uh, of don't restrict yourself by trying to, to fill in all these bubbles, uh, you know, write a beautiful narrative transcript that tells the story of what you've done with your life, why you are an intellectually uh, vital person, and and then let the evidence flow from there to kind of naturally. Um, but I have seen sometimes where they're like, no, just, just fill in all the boxes. Luckily, that's not too hard to do, right? It takes right. a few hours. Yeah, no, that's very easy. And you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, if you're applying to a non-selective college or university, you know, that is uh, the, the very simple, straightforward way to go. They don't have admissions committee that, committees that are diving into these applications, trying to understand the story, and trying to figure out the best way to construct a class because they're tending to accept, you know, most people, and, like, they're bringing on who they can. I'm really talking about these schools that really scrutinize the application because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. they're accepting, you know, less than 20, you know, oftentimes less than 10 uh, 10% of the class. But one one uh, piece of advice, though, of course, is that it's so much easier to document as you're going, whether you're doing daily journaling or weekly, like, uh, reviews or whatever, you know, just, you know, what have I been doing with my time as opposed to waiting until you're, you know, the summer before you're uh, turning 18 to say, okay, what have I done and how can I put that in some sort of transcript form? Mm-hmm. And I imagine as a parent, the trick is to do this, to help your kid do this online documentation or sometimes just do it for them in a way that doesn't put excessive pressure on them to only do stuff or learn stuff that looks academic. Yeah. Because I've seen that happen also. Uh, I, I, I would encourage parents to just not be involved in the process. <laughs> so the more that they get involved, the more uh, problems uh, that they often bring up. <laughs> I would just, I would just, encu- I encourage all people um, you know, to include adults to journal, you know, just like constantly. Uh, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Antonio, this has been a wonderful conversation. We're really on the same page here and uh, you are just packed with a wealth of experience and, and powerful advice. So thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you.